Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing the book The Romantic Challenge by Sir Francis Chichester. We're on chapter 9, and this is the 22nd part of the reading. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to help support the podcast, or you can check out the Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week, or of course, the Mariner YouTube channel, where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos, and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. Chapter 9 continued. When I awoke, it was daybreak. I felt refreshed and clear-brained. What can I do to help myself? I started to review and think. The water level in the cabin seemed about a foot below the level outside, perhaps somewhat less. Was there a chance of its rising no farther as soon as the two levels were the same? I wished I knew the answer. Even if the water continued to rise above the waterline, that is to say if the yacht continued to sink, would there be enough buoyancy forward and aft of the two watertight bulkheads to keep the hull afloat even if the cabin was full up and the decks awash? They had a considerable capacity between them, and if so, I should still have a chance of bringing the boat to port, camping meanwhile in the cockpit with my bags of food and sleeping bag. In any case, when the water levels inside and out of the cabin were level, surely the inflow would be slower. Would I not have a chance of keeping the level there with bucket bailing? One thing I was determined on, nothing would make me abandon Gypsy Moth until she sank under me. I had one thermos full of hot water, and I mixed up a honey and hot water to get over my queasiness. I think it was also excellent food, though I did not feel hungry. After that, I had a spoonful of honey at intervals. The water was now up to the level of the city, and the noise of it surging to and fro, with the floating floorboards banging from side to side of the cabin, was like the seas breaking on Brighton Beach after a storm. It nearly damped out the noise of the storm and the deck gear. Of course, I must send out an SOS. There will be a ship quite handy, and she might possibly rescue me. I worked out what I thought Gypsy Moth had done, and in which direction she had sailed since the rough DR position of the previous evening. I jotted down 43.5 degrees north, 19.5 degrees west, and logged the time as 0640 GMT. I set about transmitting an SOS. The receiver was working well, but no transmitter light came on. I gave it a biff with the palm of my hand, and to my surprise, it lighted up. I duly put out an SOS. I hoped it went on the air, though the instrument indicated almost no signal passing through the aerial. There was no response. I felt deserted. I was on my own. After the knockdown, when I had first heard the water in the bilges, I had tried the electric pumps. The switches were at the foot of my bunk. They hummed for a while, and then I tried the switches separately, only one hum. And then I thought, how stupid to waste current on bilge pumps. When I was in the cockpit to reset the helm, I had tried the manual bilge pump. It required a lot of pumping to lift the water from the bilge just to the pump. I had to sit on the edge of the cockpit seat, bent double, head down level with my knees to avoid the sweep of the tiller. The water only spurted out intermittently until I had drawn off a bucketful and then the pump jammed. I thought of opening up the pump to clear it, but what was the good of a pump which had jammed after a bucketful? The idea of trying to empty a half-full yacht was ridiculous and I left it with a surge of anger at the futility of the thing. I was gradually firming up my mind to keep the yacht afloat somehow or other until I got it to land. At first, after the knockdown, I had hated the idea of losing my life. 
Now I began to hate the idea of losing Gypsy Moth. I got a bucket and staggered along from the chart table to the cockpit with ten buckets of water, which I emptied onto the side deck. In those seas, it would have been difficult enough to carry a bucket of water through the boat, if fit and fresh. With my damaged thigh and side, it was agony. I went back to my bunk, flopped down and fell asleep for a few minutes. When my kidney area had had such a bang, I thought the kidney must have been bust or so badly damaged that it wouldn't last more than a few hours. But I was still alive. Then I thought that Gypsy Moth would be foundering in a few hours and that that would be the end of the road for me. But Gypsy Moth was still afloat and I was still alive. So I got up and dumped another batch of bucketfuls into the cockpit to let it run away through the drain holes. With each bucket I carried, I modified the drill in some way, bending my body a little forward and to the side, eased the pain in my back. There was an important handhold above the chart table seat, and the engine casing gave support to my right thigh when I moved my left leg forward, and so on. I kept a tally, making a cross for each bucket, and always aimed at a definite number, holding out for the reward of a flop down and a short rest on completing the batch. Then I would relax completely, and often slept for a few seconds. I think it was after the 30th bucket that I noticed a hole in the deck inboard of the tow rail. It was on the lee side and was either underwater when Gypsy Moth was healed, or else the seas swishing off the deck would run along the tow rail from both fore and aft down to it, swirling into the boat with a kind of whirlpool action just like water emptying out of a bath. It was near the forward end of the cockpit where I had emptied the first buckets of water over the side of the cockpit onto the side deck. Hell, what a joke. The water from those first bucketfuls must have almost returned at once through the hole. It was so ridiculous that I couldn't help laughing. But although there was enough swirling in from the water on the deck to sink Gypsy Moth, I still felt sure there was a big underwater leak. I remembered almost the last thing that Sid Mashford had said to me when I left Plymouth. Don't forget that if you have a leak, a piece of toweling is an excellent stopgap if you can pack something over it. I tore a corner off a green towel. I could not think of any suitable piece of plywood which was handy, so I cut a piece from the side of a Tupperware box. I hunted out the glass jar of tacks, stuffed a dozen in my mouth, and with a tomahawk which I kept to hand, crawled along the side deck. A stanchion had torn out, leaving the hole in the deck. I stuffed a torn-off piece of my underpants into the hole, spread my square of toweling over the top and held it there by firmly tacking down the piece of Tupperware. It wasn't easy because the hole went right up to the tow rail, and every few seconds the sea would wash over the side deck while I knelt there. In the afternoon I lay in my bunk and resumed my narrative log in the notebook. Wednesday the 5th of May, 1500 hours. Wind 25 knots, gusting to 45 and more occasionally. Speed 5.5 knots under bare poles. I had got together all the things that I needed for leaving the ship in the dinghy, except four, which I did not want now because of the storage difficulty. It was hard to find anywhere to put anything except on my bunk. The four were water, life jacket, sailing gear and spare pump for the dinghy. Author's note. For anybody unfortunate enough to be in a similar situation, I offer Overleaf without comment a list of my abandoning ship stores, which I made when I later unpacked the three bags. Bag number one, polythene. Five packets of biscuits, kitchen paper roll, two boxes of matches, one pair of socks, 
prunes and walnuts in a Tupperware box, seven oranges, one packet of VitaWheat, sunglasses, dishcloth. Number two bag, polythene. Two currant loaves, five bread rolls, one lemon, a lightweight woolen jersey, one pair of long woolen underpants, an Airtex pyjama top, I dredged the bottom half out of the bilges much later, two packets of figs, three dried bananas, one packet of prunes, one packet of almonds, one packet of raisins, one packet of dried apricots, one distress flare, red, and one very pistol. Handbag, that's a spinnaker bag. Eight oranges, two spoons, one fork. Toiletry bag, including codeine, comb, antiseptic ointment, etc., and one pair of gold cufflinks. One box of wheat germ, three bars of whole nut chocolate, two caps, two tin openers, one unserviceable, one sleeping bag in a polythene bag, a five-litre jar of honey, one hand mirror for sun flashing, six tins of baked beans, spectacles, one pair of pliers, one pen, one pencil. 1900 hours, wind 35 knots, speed 6 knots, still no sail up and won't be for the foreseeable future till the gale is over and the sea is down. I have a strong impression that the water level inboard is a little lower. So far I have removed 124 buckets, two-thirds full. I would have done more this spell had it not been for pressing jobs on deck. My biggest, longest sheet which had been attached to the storm jib had been chafed through and washed overboard. It had then got itself wound round the steering oar several times. To free it I had to lie full length on the counter and use a boat hook plus a long arm. Then I noticed that one of the self-steering tiller lines was nearly worn through and would part at any time, though I felt sure it would happen at night when it would be most difficult to deal with. Replacing it was quite a job as it passes through four blocks or pulleys and the main tiller must be kept operating while fitting the new line. I cannot get at the galley for something hot to eat because of the water. It makes an incredible row with all the floorboards afloat, knocking against each other and bottles and half the yacht's stores and gear. However, yesterday, I was sure it was only a question of how long before she sank. This shows how my sense of time had gone haywire. The knockdown had occurred the same day. At two o'clock on the morning of the 6th, the relative wind was 23 up to 40 knots and Gypsy Moth was running at a speed of 3 to 5 knots with the wind on the quarter. Two or three big waves swept over the deck and poured quite a lot of water below the companion, but two and a half hours later the wind had eased to 28 knots and while massaging my thigh and my back with arnica ointment with my left hand while I ate digested biscuits and peanut butter with my right, I was planning to set the main staysail first thing after daylight. An early job was to get to the chronometer, which I had forgotten about completely. I supposed it had stopped for want of winding, as it only runs for 56 hours. 08.35. The chronometer is okay. It records that it is only 44 hours since I wound it. All this in less than 44 hours? It seems incredible. A bonanza. Also, I found a roll of dry paper. 10.09. Well, I have done several jobs. Item 1. Raised the main staysail. Item 2. Secured the pieces of the mizzen staysail with some more ties. It looks as if it is simply that the seam sewing has given way. It wasn't hoisted at the time, but the wind got into the furl. Item 3. I noted that the starboard navigation light and its housing have carried away. Item 4. Charged the batteries to full, meanwhile. Item 5. 
freed the mizzen topping lift from the backstay insulator. I should be able to use the RT now. Item 6. Bailed out 21.5 bucketfuls of water, making a total of 145.5 buckets. Water, obviously lower. I had to use a small bucket at times to fill the big one. Of course, I am working at the near end of the lake, which is shallower than the midship's part. All this would be easy if it were not for the pain when moving. I am having a rest and will then try for a sunshot, and then have another go at the water. If I could get rid of that and start drying things, it would be a cheering step forward. I was quite dry working on the foredeck, but got a souser in the cockpit just as I was finishing. I don't mind that, except for it's keeping my padded jacket wet. Now for some cold fodder. Another 40 buckets go at the water, and I reckon I could use the galley and get something hot. I got a sunshot at 11.39 and a second one at 12.43, which gave me a fix at 43 degrees, 45 minutes north, 16 degrees, 25 minutes west. Course for Plymouth, 052 degrees, distance 651 miles. Rather rough position due to big seas. More precision later, I hope. Another 40 and a half buckets. Total, 186. Full ones, too. Now dipping in the main cabin. I'm getting a drill for it now. One learns to avoid the movements which hurt. I reckon that another 80 buckets will quiet the noise and get rid of swishing water. I have fond memories of Brighton Beach, but don't want to have to have it in the same small room for too long. I want to raise the mizzen, but I am determined to mop up this water first because my supply of energy is limited at the moment. I bailed until I had the deepest bilge empty. It has started filling again, but that does not necessarily mean there is a leak. There may be a leak below the waterline, but the pockets of water lying outboard of the stringers and timbers will be finding their way to the deepest part of the hull for some time. I kept a tally and emptied 155 buckets. I measured the bucket, a two-gallon one, and reckon on average I filled it up to one and three-quarter gallons. Total for the operation, 186 plus 155 equals 341. It may not sound much, but carrying a full bucket 10 or 20 feet in a yacht is a long way in a rough seaway. What changes of fortune in a man's life? Two or three days ago, I was as smug as can be with everything clean and tidy in the yacht ready for Sheila to come aboard at Plymouth. I was just reckoning the time to arrive. A few hours later, I was collecting hurriedly the necessaries to keep me alive for a few weeks in a dinghy, thinking it only a matter of how long before Gypsy Moth sank. A few hours later, I am still in the whole yacht, apparently undamaged below, making again for Plymouth. Some odd things turned up when I was bailing out the ship. At the 106th bucket this afternoon while bailing in the main cabin, I noticed something under the water. I put my hand in the water, which is as thick as soup, or coffee perhaps would be a better description, because I know there is at least one pound of coffee in the water, and found my longest wood saw laying at the bottom of the bilge. It had travelled all the way from a locker under Sheila's bunk in the forecabin, found its way round the mast, along the alleyway past the heads and halfway through the main cabin. How did it get so far aft? It is two and a half feet long. How did it get moved anyway with its row of teeth? At bucket 107, I drew out a full vacuum flask. This was Sheila's, and it had been fitted with quite a tight fit into a slot above the little table beside her bunk. How did that get loose? Alas, it was smashed inside and only full of bilge water. At bucket 109, 
I drew out a full bottle of Courvoisier brandy. There were no labels left on the bottle, but the stamped bottle glass identified it. It is my favourite brandy, given me by Raymond Seymour of Whitbreads. It was undamaged. Another bonanza. These finds started me thinking, and at bucket 113 I thought, why not try to light the Aladdin heater? It had been underwater for some time, but you never know unless you try. I opened the door, and there was a large clump of nasty pulped trash inside, pulped paper and debris washed into the bilge. To my surprise, a 24-watt opaque bulb was sitting on top of this heap. There is certainly an opening to the side of the stove so that one can put in one's hand to adjust the wicks, but it seemed very odd to find that bulb there above all that. Also, it boded ill for the fate of the drawer containing all my bulbs, fuses and electrics generally, because that is where it had come from. Well, I put a match to the wick and it lighted at once. Astonished, I tried the second burner and that lit too. Now they are still going full blast. Well, another big surprise. More good luck, because they are badly needed with everything in the boat being more or less soaked. I stopped working when I touched rock bottom, so to speak. Every bilge must be loaded with gear. Item. Where are nine bottles of paraffin and probably the same number of grog of various kinds? There is no sign of any of them. Now for a try at a hot meal. The first for years, it seems. I must log the heading, etc. But now I have dug out the proper log from the plastic bag where I had it ready for abandoning ship, and will resume entering up in that. On Friday the 7th of May, I was recording at 0600 that all's well. It seems to me that it is only comparison, though that's not quite the right word which I want, which counts in life. Here I am, feeling happy, contented, and undoubtedly pleased with the prospect of a whole lot of interesting problems to solve and actions to take. I wondered how many people have been damaged by being hurled against the roof of a boat cabin. Thinking about it, I figured that my leg hit the mizzenmast where it goes through the cabin roof. Everything else shot right across the cabin, so I would have done the same had something not stopped me, and that could only have been the mast. I know I was pinned to the roof because I was looking down into the bilges straight before my eyes, but they appeared to be above me. At the time I recall saying, Oh God, she's upside down. Will she right herself? But that must have been some effect of centrifugal force as she was picked up physically and thrown by the sea or the wind or both. She could not have been upside down because the masts were quite undamaged and not even displaced as far as I could see. Recalling the leeway Gypsy Moth made in rough cross seas in the Caribbean and the reasons I deduced for it, I am certain that this was the answer. Massage first, then as many exercises as I can do in the bunk. There is nowhere to stand for the others yet. One can't very well do leg swinging a la ballet school or 300 jogs while balanced on the curved frame timber of the bouncing hull. After that, if I'm as mobile as I seem to be when I got up just now, I'll be a devil and double sail area by raising the mizzen. Then a temporary aerial is needed so that I can get the Colorado time signal. The chronometer is probably still accurate because it has stood some pretty hefty shocks already successfully, but of course I can't tell. The previous aerial made use of one of the lifelines, but evidently was put out of action when the stanchion pulled out of the deck. For Vartz, oh, and then I must have a hunt to see if I can find an egg intact. How delicious fried eggs would be for breakfast. I know one egg that won't answer the roll call, because it stuck my chart folds together, and when I tried to open the chart, the paper surface pulled off, spoiling the chart. 
Anyone reading this might say, why on earth is he meandering along over the paper when there is so much wanting to be done? My answer would be that I am not in a hurry. At present, I am not going to do a single thing unless I have to. I want to recover from my body blows first, and that requires time. I don't want even to feel hurried. The only way to make a success out of a situation like this is to act as if it were one's normal way of living. I'm going to turn it into a normal way of life, sailing this craft with my body damaged. I learned this from the great explorer Stephenson. His maxim was that successful polar travel depended on first making Arctic travel one's way of life. And there is dear old Lao Tse's remark, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Well, that's all for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly. And remember, of course, you've got all the content over on YouTube and the Mariner podcast, and of course, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.